Last week, if you weren't here, we were talking about the great and amazing love of the Father and, and, and knowing the Father. And we specifically spent time on really looking at how Jesus revealed the Father to us in ways that we didn't, we, we, you know, really the world thought was blasphemous. The way Jesus spoke about the Father offended religious people. That God could have that relationship with someone was offensive. That God could be that good was offensive. You know, religion still gets offended today. What does the word offense mean? And, and, I mean, the, the Bible word offense. When you see that in your Bible where it says, blessed is the one who doesn't take offense in me or isn't offended by me. Or, you know, it says, many will be offended. When, when it uses that word offense, offended, that word means to trip, to stumble over something. Right? So it means that, you know, and, and really, we just think if we're offended, it's, it's whoever offended us. It's their fault. You offended me. You're the offensive person. But really, the, the Bible paints a picture of, yeah, don't be offensive. But at the same time, don't allow yourself to be offended. And Jesus says, don't allow yourself to be offended by me. Now, if you think if there was anybody that's perfect, it's Jesus, right? He is perfect. So you think, well, what could be offensive about Jesus? Ironically, what was so offensive about Jesus was just how good he said God was and how good he demonstrated God was. What, what people were offended by was that he would dare to eat with the wrong crowd, that he would dare to love people that they felt weren't worthy of love, that he would dare to say he had a relationship with the Father that they didn't think God wanted with anyone. Religion still gets offended by this right? What's offensive to religion? You might say, well, I know what's offensive to religion. Uh, what's offensive to religion is what the world's doing right now. Yeah, 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 maybe. But if you really want to see what most of the books, the, really, the real angry books in the Christian bookstore, and I know I used to work there. <laughs> the real angry books where the fury comes out, where the claws come out, it's not about what the world's doing. It's about what the church is doing. People get real offended when someone paints a picture of God that doesn't line up with their picture of God. And Jesus repainted the picture of God. <laughs> and so if we want a, an accurate picture of God, you don't go to what granddaddy thought, although granddaddy probably had some good thoughts. But first and foremost, you got to look at Jesus. Can I look at Jesus and see the Father? Absolutely. That's what he said. So if you, can't, if you can trust Jesus... Which if we can't trust Jesus, what are we doing here, right? If we can't trust Jesus, let's go, let's go home and, and play. Let's have fun. Let's go, let's go to a barbecue. Let's go watch World Cup. Let's do something else. But of course, I don't want to do that. You don't want to do that because we do believe Jesus. And Jesus is the one that said, you look at me, you've seen God. You've seen the Father. I want to show you what he looks like. I want to show you not just what he looks like. But like we said last week, so often we say, well, that's the relationship Jesus had with the Father because he was the Son of God. And yet, everything that Jesus said about you was that you were going to have the same relationship with the Father that he had. Read the book of John. It's all through it, especially in the last three chapters. He's saying, you abide in me, you abide in the Father. The Father abides in me, the Father abides in you. In John 17, he says, we'll all be one. He says, the, the love that the Father loved me with is given to you now. So in reality, that same relationship with God that offended the Pharisees in John chapter 8 is the relationship with God that will offend religion even today. 
that anyone could claim to be a son of God, a child of God, a daughter of God, and really believe it is a radical thought. But radical thoughts are what actually change things, right? You got to be radical when it comes to what you believe about God, because God is so, um, so extremely beyond what we're used to. That's the great thing about coming to him is that he surprises you constantly. And you look at it and you say, you can't possibly be this good. It's, how many of you heard the phrase, it's too good to be true? Yeah. Right? Because most things in the world, isn't that a strange phrase? We, we don't ever say it's too bad to be true. Because we are by nature, without Jesus, we are by nature very cynical and pessimistic. So we go, yeah, that sounds about right. Well, that sounds really bad. Probably. The world's a mess. We never say it's too bad to be true, but we say it's too good to be true because something in us says extreme goodness can't exist. But that's exactly who God is. He is extreme goodness. He is love. And so when we come face to face to him, we have to get over this disbelief that it could be that good. It's, It's too good not to be true. If you believe that, everything changes. So I want to go back to 1 John 4. We read this last week, but I'm going to go a little bit further. In verse 15, it says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. Just think of the reality of that for a minute. God lives in you. Anybody here confess that Jesus is the Son of God? You believe that? That's not like super controversial here. Not in this room. Right? Shouldn't be. Jesus is the Son of God. So God himself abides in in you. Not just around you. In you. Big thought, right? Then he says, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So once again, we're going to go back to what we said last week. That is the big statement. We have come to know. That means, you know, it just wasn't automatic. It wasn't something we just figured out one day. We had to come to the realization. We came to the knowledge that God loved us. But we had to just come a little bit further than knowledge, right? Because we'll say, we'll, we'll get our doctrine right a million times over. We, will, we know how to win Bible baseball. We know how to sound like good Christians. If you ask me a question, I know how to answer it. But knowing it and believing it can be very different things. Like I said, today, when you sat down in that chair, you believed in that chair. Some people are like, oh, I don't believe that much. Well, you believe that it could hold your weight. That's what it was designed to do. It wasn't designed to feed you. It was designed to hold your weight. So in what it was designed to do, you believed it. It will hold my weight. You just sat down. Now imagine if you didn't, I mean, if it was like, if we were just using really rickety, rickety old straw chairs that you're not so sure about, but you wanted to sound like you're not bashing the church. And I said to you, hey, these are nice chairs, aren't they? And you might be like, yeah, they're nice chairs. These chairs will hold you, won't they? Yeah, they'll probably, probably hold me. 
Now, you're saying the right answers, but the truth will come out when we see how you sit down, right? Whether you really believe that. We all know how to say God is good. We all know how to say God is love. We all want to know how to say God loves me. But we know we believe it by the weight that we put on that love. Now, when you hear that, the weight I put on that love, it sounds like we're testing God. No, that's not what I'm saying. It's, I'm talking about guys like Peter that say, uh, Lord, if it's you, call me out, and I'll walk on water with you. That kind of statement shows what Peter thought about Jesus more than what Peter thought about himself. Because you know, Peter wasn't trying to walk on water when Jesus wasn't around. He wasn't like, guys, look at this. I think I figured it out. What did he say? Lord, if it's you, if it's you, you call me out and I'll walk on water. It showed what he thought about Jesus, but it also showed what he thought that Jesus could do through him. And that's really what failed him in the end was not that he didn't worry about Jesus sinking. He didn't say, Lord, we're sinking. He said, Lord, I'm sinking. Help me. He had no doubt that Jesus was able to walk on water. But the doubt came in is, I know you can walk on water, but I'm not so sure I can still do it. We'll say this all the time. God, I know your love. I know that you love and love and love and forgive and forgive and forgive. I'm not sure I can do that. When I got out of the boat, I felt like I could, but now the storms are coming. Now the wind's coming, and I'm doubting my ability to walk in your love because that's really what it's about. You're not, you're, you don't have to question your ability to love. The question's not, can I love people? The question's not, can I forgive someone? And we hear that question a lot. Well, how can I forgive this person? How can I do this? How can I do that? And listen, you're putting all the weight on you. Can I love this much? Can I forgive? But this is not what he's saying. He says his love abides in you. When he loves through you, when his forgiveness rests in you, you're able to do things you could never do, but he's doing through you. So he says, abide in my love. Does everybody know what abide is? Abide means to live there. I abide over there on the Alberta side, the good side. <laughs> Just kidding. Look how close I am to the Saskatchewan side. I love it. We could throw a rock and hit Saskatchewan. And we do. We throw rocks. At... No, I'm just kidding. But I live right over there. I live right over there. That's where I abide. I live there. That's my place. That's my home. What would it look like if we lived in his love? If we lived in him. Now, we all know that God lives in me. Whether we believe that, that's the next step. But think about what it means for us to live in him. Oh, I love Psalm 90. When Moses, who's been a nomad most of his life, wandering around, never had a home. His, his friends have all dropped dead, except for Joshua and Caleb. He's never known what it was like, not since he was a kid in Egypt. Has he known what it was like to, to stay in one place for too long? And you know, that gets to someone after a while. He says in the beginning of Psalm 90, he says, Oh Lord, you've been our refuge. You've been our dwelling place for generations. We have had a home this whole time. It was you. You were our home. He says here, we came to know and we believe the love which God has for us. And, and you know, I'm preaching this today not because I want to preach a sermon that I think will, will you know, hit a single, double, or triple. I'm, I'm preaching this today 
Because as a pastor, I believe this is one of the foundational things that, that, we, that we need to get in us that everything else good in our life will flow out of. Some people are like, oh, these guys talk about God's love so much, you know, because they're afraid to talk about the other issues. No, I believe you can't talk about the other issues if you can't figure this out. This is foundational. And people are like, well, let's move on. We've got that foundation. But listen, the proof in front of my eyes is that we haven't fully got this foundation. We need more. We need more. I was just in Kahiwin uh, Reserve on Friday, and we were talking about fear. And you know, when we talk about fear, we're, we're thinking about like the fear of getting in a plane or fear of getting hit by a car, fear about your kids getting kidnapped or something. But you know, the fear that we carry around so often, that fear that we will be abandoned, that fear that we will be rejected, that fear that God will love us up to this point, but not past this point. There's a fear that, that, that drives people and holds people back at the same time. And in that moment, I knew most of the people I was preaching to in that tent were believers. And yet God did such a mighty work amongst them. There were people that had been saved for 50 years that God set free from a fear that had just been clinging to them for so long. So they need it. After that, if, I mean, an old man gets wheeled up in a wheelchair and needs to know that God loves him. And he's been following God longer, way longer than I've been alive, probably twice as long as I've been alive. Then my goodness, I need it too. Because I know it, but do I believe it? It's ironic. We could probably take that statement. I know it, but do I believe it? And <laughs> you could start condemning yourself for not believing it enough, which is kind of missing the point. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't be so hard on myself. Oh. <laughs> Why am I so hard on myself? I'm just oh, I'm the worst at being hard on myself. You know, you kind of miss the whole thing. And like I said last week, the fear, and it is fear, and nothing good comes out of that kind of fear. The fear is, if we talk too much about God's love, people won't serve God. And whether people say it or not, that's what they think. If we talk too much about God's love and his forgiveness and his grace, all people go out and sin. Which is a really strange thought. Because if that's the case, then Jesus, who seemed to understand this more than anybody, would have been the biggest sinner. Right? The, the one who said, I'm always pleasing to God. The one who said, he's never left me. The one who, said, who was more affirmed by God than anyone. The one who knew the Father and knew he was loved by the Father didn't say, oh, fine. I, I know you'll let me go. I know you'll let me off. I'll just, I'm just going to do this. No. Love compelled him to be like his Father. I believe that about you today. And it was what the religious people thought about Jesus today, that his kindness towards sinners, his gentleness towards sinners, if he was just a little too kind to them, they felt he was condoning their sin. And yet Jesus never condoned their sin. He loved the people. He said things like, go and sin no more. I mean, I believe that person was empowered to go and sin no more when they heard that. He went and ate with Zacchaeus and he didn't say, here are 10 things you need to do and then I'll eat with you. Get these things right because you know what? My board's on my back. My board's on my back. If I eat with a guy like you, the press is going to be all over it. Fix these things 
Then we can eat. We can have supper. You want to have supper? I'm a big deal. I'm kind of a big deal around here. So if you want to eat with me, get these things right. He didn't do anything. He just looked at the weird little man in a tree, said, I'm coming to your house. He invited himself. How rude. He comes, I'm coming to your house, which in that culture was a big deal because when you entered someone's home, you said, you're worthy of me. And that's why the centurion said, don't come into my house. It wasn't because the centurion found himself unworthy, but because he knew a Jew couldn't enter a Gentile's house. There was a sense of even, even to enter a Gentile's house. That's why Peter had to get a vision three times saying, it's okay, go to their house. Go to Cornelius' house. So there was this idea, if I go into somebody's house, I am accepting them. Jesus makes the move because Zacchaeus is never going to ask Jesus because Zacchaeus knows he's a bad dude. Zacchaeus knows he's been ripping off his own people. He's a collaborator with the Romans. He's been stealing from his own people who were poor enough already. And Jesus says, I'm coming to your house. And everybody's just like, oh, great. This is going to be terrible PR. This is going to look bad. Somehow we're going to have to spin this. Jesus goes over to his house. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere seemingly, Zacchaeus stands up and says, hey, I've stolen a lot. And I'm going to pay back four times what I stole. If I stole anything, I'm paying it back four times. Somehow, his repentance came out of Jesus' kindness, which is kind of what the Bible says would happen. Somehow, when Jesus comes on a Peter's boat, gives him a load of fish, Jesus, Peter falls on his knees and says, Lord, I'm a sinful man. His repentance came after the kindness of Jesus. It was a response to the goodness of God. So we're afraid as church people that we might, if we're just a little too nice, people will think we're okay with everything. I don't believe that. I just believe that's not our, it's, it's, it's not our job to worry about what everybody thinks about us. It's our job to show the Father. It's our job to walk after Jesus, to follow him. It's our job to do what he did. It's our job to let that flow through us and let him sort out what he thinks. That's all that matters to me. At the end of the day, that's all that can matter to you, right? Who cares what people say about you as long as he's saying the right things about you? Now he goes on and he says this in verse 17. By this love is perfected with us. Now, this is important. What does perfected mean? Like if you were to look up this word, it means completed, you know, fulfilled. It's, it's, it, this, the circuit's complete. The series is complete. Perfected means it's brought to fulfillment. So his love towards you is perfect. Amen? Right? His love is perfect. There's nothing to add to it. And yet when he talks about his love perfected in us, it means that this is, this is the natural fulfillment. This is the natural end. This is, this is the result of his love towards us is that it's being perfected in us. It's being brought to completion in us. It's being brought to maturity within us. So his love is, is perfect already, but the perfection really comes when his love not is, only, is not just towards us, but it's working in us and through us. That's why this whole chapter has been saying he loves you so there's going to be a natural response of his love for you is going to make you love other people. And he says, if you don't love other people, you might need to ask yourself, do I really love God? Do I know God is, what, is the question really. He says, because if someone says they know God and they can't love people, there's something wrong with that logic. 
Which is ironic because there's a lot of super, super religious people who claim to know God better than all of us. And yet they're the meanest people. John, remember this whole letter is, is meant to reassure some folks. What's the big purpose? He wants to reassure them that they're not because there's a lot of false teaching going around. There's a lot of weird stuff going around. He wants to make sure they know the truth. He wants to make sure they know they have eternal life. They want, he wants to make sure they know the difference between light and darkness. He wants to make sure they know the difference between Christ and the spirit of Antichrist. So one of the things he says is if someone tells you they know God, because one of the, 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 the heresies that he's confronting is the heresy of Gnosticism that said we have a deeper knowledge and if you come into our group, we will reveal to you secrets about God. Secrets you don't know. A new, deeper understanding of God. And he goes, somebody claims to know God and they have no love in their life? There's your red flag. No, nah, I don't want you going around judging people, looking at going... The way he pumped gas didn't look very loving. Because <laughs> that's when you get in the vicious cycle of you not being that loving yourself. But I, I found this a helpful, helpful um, way to live myself. The, the people I really allowed to speak into my life and to, to teach and correct me, I've watched them. They love people. And they love God. And I know they love me. So the love in their life proves that they're, they're walking with God. And that to me means a lot. It means a lot more than they can list, you know, every tenet of the Nicene Council. It, it, it tells me that they know God himself, not just theology about God, they know God. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may, by what? He says, by this. What did he just say? We've come to know and believe the love. So until you really believe, you really buy into the fact that, he, that that love is real, his love will never be perfected in you until you believe it. When you believe and receive that love, then it'll start to be perfected in you. It says his love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. That statement, we could preach five messages on it and, 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 and not really capture the depth of that statement. As he is, so also are we in this world. That's jarring in a really good way. Verse 18, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Now listen, we already said God's love is perfect, yeah? But remember, he's talking about his love being perfected in us. So I believe that that perfect love, when it starts to be perfected in you, when it's perfected in you, when you really receive that love, when you really receive that love, you're going to see that love working in your life. You're going you're to fellowship with that love. You're going to live in that love. And when that's happening, it's being perfected in you. It's being completed in you. And when that love is completed in me, when that love is, and I'm not saying completed like at the end of our race. I'm talking about right now when that love is being perfected in me, fear is leaving. When I receive that love, I'm living in that love. I'm going to give that love just like I received it. And the more and more that love is being perfected, the more and more that series is being completed, that, that circuit's being completed, I'm going to see all traces of fear in me, in the relationships I have with people, and the way I look at God, the way I look at myself, and the way I look at everyone else is being cast out. 
Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. So it's not saying the one who fears has not received the perfect love of God, but has not been perfected in love. In other words, you haven't really received it for yourself. And when you receive it for yourself, you start to see it in your life. Verse 19. This is, remember, this is a continuation of that thought. We love because he first loved us. That's the picture of love being perfected. So if I lost you five minutes ago, talking about the series being completed, this is the simple statement. We love because he first loved us. That's how love is perfected in you. Simple. First, first, what's first? He first loved me. First thing you got to believe is that he loves you. Not only that he loves you, because that's not what John says. He says loved. Why is it past tense? Did God stop loving you? No, it's past tense because there was a certain moment in history where that love was perfectly crystallized. And that's the cross. When I look at the cross, I say he loved me. That doesn't mean he doesn't love me now. It means he loved me. He acted in love. Love did that. He loved me. We love. This is how we love. This is why we love. Because he first loved us. Listen, this is what I'm trying to tell you. If you don't believe that, you will try and try to live your life loving people and you'll never be able to pull it off. You can't pull off love. You can't see love working in your life. You can't have love perfected until you just believe he loved me. I know that sounds super simple. And maybe you're saying, you know, tell me something I don't know. I might not be able to tell you something you don't know today, but I might be able to tell you something you don't believe. Fully. And I can tell you that because I haven't always fully believed this. I put limits on God's love for me. I put boundaries on it. I said, I know he loves me, but it's because I'm doing this and that. And he loves me in these circumstances. I'm not sure he loves me here. And the fact is, the more boundaries you place on God's love for you, you'll find the more boundaries you place on your love for everybody else. Right? I will love you as long as you show up at church on time. I will love you as long as I can count on you. I will love you as long as you love me back. Well, what I'm doing is I'm putting conditions on my love for you. And that's a direct indication on the conditions I believe God put on me. So Jesus says to his disciples, he says, you know what? Go into these, go and reach the lost sheep of Israel. He says, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, cast out evil spirits. Freely you've received. Now freely give. Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers. Cast out evil spirits. Freely you've received. Now freely give. Now you might say, wait a minute. These guys, these disciples that he sent out weren't ex-lepers. So how are they going to give something they didn't receive? Well, they, they were given of his kingdom. They were given his love. They were given his goodness. And now they can freely give it. So what does freely mean? What does it mean to freely give? It, uh, to me, it, uh, two things pop up to mind. When I give freely, first of all, there's no charge. Right? There's no quid pro quo. There's no, we will give you a sandwich if you pray the salvation prayer. <laughs> That's not, there's no condition to my love for you. So I'm going to freely give. It's free. I'm not going to charge you something. 
Remember, there were people that came along, a guy named Simon the Magician comes to Peter and says, this Holy Spirit thing, I really like it. I can make money off of it. Can you please show me how to do this? And Peter basically <laughs> just calls him a son of the devil. So, first of all, we don't charge because <laughs> it was given to us without charge. But I also believe freely means without limit or measure. Right? So we're not just saying no charge. We're also saying no cap. I'm going to freely give without a cap to it. Without saying, well, that's enough. Or, you know, this is all I can afford. I'm freely giving because I freely received. Now here's the deal. If you don't believe you freely receive from God, which we may all say we have, but if you really spend two hours with someone asking them what they think about God, you'll find out that a lot of people think they believe that and they really don't. They really don't believe that we freely have received from God. Here are 10 reasons why I can't get healed. Here are five reasons why God still isn't happy. Here are seven reasons. I mean, and we'll go through it. And so when, because I can't freely receive from God, I, I also can't freely give. I won't be able to freely give what I haven't been able to freely receive. If you don't believe it was free, if you don't believe it was given without measure, you won't, you won't give without measure. You'll give just enough. You'll say, well, I don't think you deserve all this. I think you deserve this much. And that's a direct indication most of the time that that's the way we think the Father dealt with us. Remember the, the villain, I guess you'd call him, in the story about the prodigal son? the end of the day, the villain in the story wasn't the kid that went off and spent all his money on stupid things. At the end of the day, the guy that got in trouble, the guy that Jesus was talking about that should have got his act together was the, was the brother who didn't celebrate the lost one coming home. And remember, it was all because of false impressions he had about his father. So he's mad. So for those of you who don't know the story, there's a son and he's a, real, he's a real brat, a real jerk. He, I mean, I don't like this guy. I'm a little upset he got a party thrown for him, all right? So I'm a little bit of, I'm a little bit of the prodigal son's brother, I'm just admitting. What kind of guy, while his dad is still alive, says, hey, give me my inheritance? That's, that's a low move. Hey, give me my inheritance now. I'm not even dead. Go ahead, give it to me now. So he, he, he takes his money and he doesn't say, let's spend this together. He says, I want to get away from you. He goes away from his father. He goes to a far off land and he spends his money on things he should not be spending his money on mm -hmm. until he's dead broke. He goes and works for a pig farmer and he's jealous of the pigs. He's envious of the pigs because he's like, boy, those pods look good. Those little, those little bean pods I'm giving them look delicious. He finally says, well, I'm going to go back to my dad. Even his servants eat better than me. So I'm going to go back and say, let me be a slave. Let me be a servant. And I don't need to be your son. Just let me work for you. And we all know the story. He comes back home. His father sees him. His father sees him from far off because his father never lost hope. He's just standing in the road waiting for him. Sees him. Runs to meet him. Doesn't say, you need to come and grovel at my feet. He runs to meet him. Puts on fresh clothes on him. Puts a ring on his finger saying he can boss these guys around. Put, you know, and then says, go kill that, that calf we've been saving up for the feast. Go, go, let's go have a party together. And he invites everybody. And then eventually he looks around and sees that his oldest son's not around. So he goes and sends for him. And the oldest son says, I'm not coming to that party. Why would you throw a party for the guy? 
that wasted all his money, that basically spit in our face. And, and what does he say? I've been here this whole time. You never threw a party for me. What did, God, what did the father say? And the father is symbolizing God. Don't you know everything I have is yours? Mm-hmm. You see, if the son had believed, if the oldest son had believed that everything the father had was already his, he would have been a lot more open with his brother. His hatred of his brother came from his own false conception about his father. If you look at the reasons we're bitter against people and the reasons we hate people and the reasons we just can't forgive, the root of all of that is what we believe God thinks about us. Because if you really believe you've been freely forgiven, you will freely forgive everyone else. Jesus told the parable about the guy that owed billions of dollars in debt. That's just the modern conversion. Billions of dollars. <laughs> and his, his boss says, you know what? Debt's forgiven. He goes, oh, thank you. I was never going to be able to pay that off. And he immediately goes and he finds a guy that owes him a few hundred bucks and shakes him down and says, why don't you pay me back? And he has him thrown into debtor's prison, which I never really thought was the best idea because someone who's in prisons has a hard time paying you back. Yes. <laughs> right, but the idea was your family will pony up some cash or something. So he has him thrown into debtor's prison and immediately his boss calls him back and says, hey, what's up, man? I forgave you all of that money and you shake this guy down for a little bit? Like, does that make sense? And, and we all laugh at that guy. And go, well, of course that doesn't make sense. And yet that's what we're doing. I can't forgive you. You've gone too far this time. Oh, yeah? Did they drive you to death? Were you tortured and killed for them? Because that's what Jesus did for you. You can't get over what they did to you. We put Jesus on the cross. So what he's saying is, I forgave you this much. You can't forgive that little bit? It all comes back to whether we were able to freely receive. If you can freely receive, you can freely give. And I want you to not look at, look at yourself and, and, and just, just beat yourself up over this. I, feel, I, just, I guess I haven't been a good enough Christian because I'm not very forgiving. I'm not very loving. Listen, I don't know if that's helping anybody around you. This self-flagellation. Can you try this? Just for a minute. If you see this in your life, see the evidence of just a lack of being able to forgive, you're bitter, you're hateful, you're angry. Can you just ask yourself the question, do you really feel loved by God? Do you believe that he forgave everything? Do you believe he forgives you that much, he loves you that much? Because when you can fix what you think about him, he'll fix the way you think about others. We love because he first loved us. Verse 20, someone says, I love God and hates his brother. He's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And the commandment we have from him is that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Is this... You guys know Isaiah 54. Some of you do, some of you. That might be new to you. Isaiah 54. We talked about Isaiah 53. Hundreds of years before Jesus died on the cross, the prophets told the story. Isn't that amazing? They told the story of what would happen to Jesus. And it's a hard story to read because it's a lot of pain that he went through for me. But in Isaiah 54, the first words are shout for joy. 
Because we're looking at what happens when Jesus laid his life down for us. And he says, shout for joy, O barren woman. He's talking about He's talking about the Jews and Gentiles both being brought to a place of redemption. And I want to read you something from the last part of that chapter. Hang with me. It won't be much longer than this, but I want you to see this. In Isaiah 54... told them all of a sudden, shout for joy, stretch out your tent, get ready, I'm going to do something. He says in Isaiah 54, 4, fear not for you will not be put to shame. Don't feel humiliated for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Your redeemer, the one that buys you back, is the Holy One of Israel who has called you the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she's rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great, great, massive, epic compassion, I will gather you. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Isn't that an amazing statement? He talks about a moment, and then he talks about eternity. And if you can't compare, even our life compared to eternity is a drop. Can you imagine what a moment is? He says this with everlasting loving kindness. That word loving kindness is so interesting to me. It's a word that, um, you know, nobody's been able to really nail it down. This Hebrew word chesed, which is speaking of goodness, it's speaking of love, of mercy. But many scholars talk about, you have to judge it by its context. Because it kind of has a different, it's always good, it's always love. But it looks different in different contexts, depending on what you're talking about. And they say when you're talking about two people that are in covenant together, that that word chesed is speaking of a covenant love. A covenant, faithful love. A, and, and that love is not a feeling, it's, it's goodness. So it's a reaction, it's what I do because of my covenant with you. It's, what, it's my love and my goodness because of my covenant. It is faithful, it can't be broken. It's the benefits of our covenant. Do you know what I'm saying? It's, it's what I'm doing because of, because of my covenant love for you. It's because of my my. my, my my relationship, my treaty with you, whatever you want to call it, because of that, this is how I'm acting towards you. And it's always goodness. And he says this, with everlasting, that means there's no end to it, faithful covenant love in action. This word is never about a feeling. It's never about like, I I love you. I feel fuzzy when you come in the room. You know, like sometimes when when you're away, I just think about you and I think they're swell. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about love that's enacted towards you. We talk about the goodness that comes from that love. And he says, with everlasting, with no end to it, loving kindness, faithful love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. 
For this is like the days of Noah to me when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I've sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. It's an amazing thought that we'd all believe and we all see the rainbow and believe that God's not going to flood the earth again. Everybody who's ever read the story of Noah's Ark says God's not going to flood the earth again because he promised. But it's weird that people will believe that God will never flood the earth again. But it's, and they'll say, never, never, never will he destroy the earth with a flood. But they have a real hard time believing that he wouldn't be angry with them like he was before Jesus. Now, his anger was towards sin, right? His anger was towards sin. It was a righteous anger. And we attached ourselves to that and said, that sin's mine. I'm, I'm part of this. But when Jesus came, he removed the sin from us so that when God looks at you, he doesn't look, at, he doesn't look in anger. He looks at you as someone who's been washed, someone who's clean. And then he says this, nor will I rebuke you in verse 10. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake. Can you think of what would have to happen for a mountain to be removed? Guys, think about it. I'm going to the Rockies next week. I have made plans and I know that those Rockies will be there. I'm not worried about it. I'm not checking the weather forecast to see if the mountains will be around. <laughs> They're going to be there. I t we take Moses and we go, see those mountains? Someday you'll take your kids. I don't say, hmm, if they're still around. They'll take your kids. No, the mountains aren't going anywhere. He says, but even if they did, the mountains could be removed. The hills may shake. But my covenant love will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken. And you guys who know that word peace, that shalom, that is something that Jesus won for us. It is, it is wholeness, it's perfection, and that peace is coming from a place, that wholeness is wholeness of relationship with him, wholeness of knowing that there is nothing between me and him anymore, and now I'm not questioning his love may not be there tomorrow, because just as sure as I am that the Rockies are there, I'm even more sure that his love will be there, because the Rockies could disappear and his love would still be there. Right? So if any of you are planning vacations and you think the mountains will be there, then you should certainly believe the love of God's going to be there. My covenant of peace will, will not, will not be shaken. And the guy who's saying this has already seen the future. Right? He's not like, I'm pretty sure, I feel pretty strongly about this now. It's not like a 16-year-old who says, I'm going to love you forever. And they see a movie that changes their mind. You know, no, this is a God who's in the future right now. He's seen every possible outcome. He's seen everything that happens, and he's still like, no. You know what? At the end of this, my love's still there. Yeah. It's impossible. You, you can't figure a way that, that, that this will stop my love. There's nothing. There is no possible outcome where his love is removed. Verse 11. Oh, afflicted one. Storm-tossed and not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony. Not too many people brag about their stones being set in antimony. There's not a lot of songs about that, hey? You set my stones in antimony. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Go ahead and write one now. No, I, I think that would be good. 
It's colorful rocks, guys. It's colorful stones, precious stones, colorful gems, all right? And your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of crystal, your entire walls of precious stones. Your sons will be taught of the Lord. The well-being of your sons will be great. In righteousness, you will be established. You will be far from oppression, for you will not fear. Why will you not fear? Because his everlasting covenant love is not removed from me. That's why I don't fear. It's like David said, I won't be afraid because you're with me. Remember, because the perfect, perfect love is casting out all fear. See, if we believed all of this, if you believed in the faithful love of God, then you would have faithful love for others. And many of you do. That's exactly why you're able to have faithful love for us. You know what faithful love means? It's not conditional. It's not on a good day. It's not when things are going just right. Faithful love is there when everything else falls apart. Paul said this. He said, our word to you is not yes and no at the same time. As God is faithful, so we're faithful. Isn't that amazing? Paul is saying, my faithfulness comes from God's faithfulness. And my simple point to you, I know I've used a lot of words to make a simple point. I probably could have made it in five minutes. <laughs> the simple point today is I want you to freely receive and freely believe the love of God. Because it's the only way we're going to able to love, be able to love with the love that Jesus has called us to love. It's the only way you're ever going to minister to the people Jesus called you to minister to. It's the only way your heart's going to be free from bitterness and hate that would spring up and defile many. It's the only way you're actually going to be able to see signs, wonders, and miracles in, in a real way in your life is when you believe that it's been freely given to you. And today, I, my prayer for us is that as a church, we'd buy into it more than we've ever bought into it before. We believe it on a level that we would say, I know it and I believe it to the depths of my being. Your covenant love will not be shaken for me. Your covenant goodness, your covenant love, your faithful love. Can we just do something that as we just stand with me?